so for a long time, it used to be thought that like minimum wage workers were just like teenagers in middle class homes. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, a big chunk of them were in like the 60s and 70s. But increasingly, partly, you know, since Reagan, for all the reasons uh, you're, you you talked about, an increasing share of minimum wage workers are like older workers, workers with families that, you know, are trying to like uh, live on a minimum wage job. Hide your kids. Lock the doors. You're listening to HR's most dangerous podcast. Chad Sowash and Joel Cheeseman are here to punch the recruiting industry right where it hurts. Complete with breaking news, brash opinion, and loads of snark. Buckle up, boys and girls. It's time for the Chad and Cheese Podcast. Oh, yeah. What's up, everybody? This is your favorite podcast, the Chad and Cheese Podcast. I'm your co-host, Joel Cheeseman is always joined by my co-host at arms, Chad Sowash. And today, he's back, he's bad, he's out for blood. It's part two of our interview with Suresh Naidu. It's Chad's biggest crush, man crush at all. Suresh, welcome back to the show. Uh, You have a PhD, but I question your intelligence coming back on the show. How have you been, man? Uh, totally legitimate to question my intelligence. Uh, uh, so, yeah, I'm great. Uh, how are you? I'm fine. Excellent, dude. Excellent, dude. We asked the yeah. question. <laughs> so give us a little, Joel gave us a, you have a PhD, but give us, a, again, listeners, a little bit of background about you, and then we're going to jump into today's topic. Yeah. So I'm a, I'm an economist. I, my area of specialty is economic history and particularly of, of, of labor markets. So I've studied everything from American slavery to union in the 20th century to the minimum wage and the gig economy today. So I'm kind of a jack of all trades as they come in economics. And with that background, you're the life of every party that you attend, right? (laughs) You'd be surprised how much that's actually true. (laughs) Get Suresh over here. Tell us that story, Suresh. That's what we're going to do today. Today, we're going to have like a party discussion and it's going to be around minimum wage. I mean, it's in the news today. It's in the social discussion. Everybody's fighting about it, but you have the history behind this. A unique perspective. Yes. And and I'd love to be able to go back from a history standpoint and then just kind of like ramp into today and have that discussion. But I think it's important that, you know, we all better understand and we're more educated around around the topics we're actually discussing. So therefore, that's why we bring smart dudes on like uh, like you to talk about that. So how yep. did this whole thing start? Was it was it FDR? Was it before that? Uh, so in fact, in the you know, before the New Deal, for example, like most labor law was the domain of state and local government. And so different states had different minimum wages. So it sort of starts, I, I think, in in um, in New York state law in 1905. There's a there's a background. So the Supreme Court during this early 20th century period was super hostile to labor legislation. So, you know, there's this famous case, Lochner versus New York, where like New York tried to pass a statute that limited that was like a maximum hours law, like, you know, that that bakers couldn't work uh, too many hours. And the Supreme Court was like, this is an unconscionable restriction on freedom of contract and struck it down. What that then led reformers of the day push for is like minimum wages for women and children, especially and so the first minimum wage is like in Massachusetts in 1912. And then, you know, you kind of get a whole bunch of other minimum wages, always sort of restricted uh, to women and children. The exception might be like Oklahoma in 1937. Uh-huh. But also all of them exempting, uh, almost all of them exempting agricultural workers and domestic workers for 
you know, <laughs> which just sort of happened to exempt also a large fraction of the African-American population yes. from coverage yeah. by the minimum wage. Uh-huh. Uh, and it's probably not an accident, you know, it's, uh, uh, and these are like state level laws and, you know, and carving out exemptions for, for, for domestic uh, and agricultural labor. But then in 1937, the Supreme Court determines that all of these are unconstitutional and basically strikes down all of the minimum wage laws. It's uh, 1936 or 1937. And then they like have another case where they find that it is constitutional. And then that basically leads FDR to put a federal minimum wage in the Federal Labor Standards Act of 1938. And that's the first federal minimum wage. It also has an exemption for agricultural and domestic work, but it's like kind of the, for the first time that you have like a blanket minimum wage that's binding in Mississippi the same way it's binding in like New Hampshire. So why did they put that in though? So what was what was the reason for that? Was it because poverty was 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 running rampant? Why did the government feel like they had to step in from a federal standpoint and actually override everything the states were actually putting in place? Well, so there was like an argument of the time that it was the term was sweated labor. So it was basically like sweatshops in the US mm-hmm. and that people are like, we need to eliminate sweatshop. And it's a moral imperative to like, end quote, unquote, sweated labor. And Roosevelt was talking about the need to end starvation wages. So there was a real like moral case for the uh, for the minimum wage. And that's kind of always been there for in the background of, of the minimum wage. It's not just like a it raises wages for low income workers. There's also a real sort of sense in which it like the dignity of a minimum wage is part of like what you know, you're trying to establish as like a democratic polity is like you need to have it that people that work like can actually have a decent standard of living uh, as a result of that. They can survive. They can survive. That's the first time I've ever heard starvation wages, but that in itself, I mean, that's pretty damned impactful. Was that, was that like what they use today? We use quote unquote living wage, which is kind of like a softened version of that. Is that, was that the term that they were actually using starvation wages? They talked about starvation wages. Like reformers were like, we need to end starvation wages. And like, you know, there's like a quote from like the department of labor, certain basic standards of adequacy are generally recognized as inherent in the concept of a minimum wage based on the cost of living. So it's just like, you know, the government was talking about basic standards of living as a part of the reason to have a minimum wage. And then I think like in the context of the recovery from the depression, there was also kind of a uh, Keynesian aggregate demand point that, hey, maybe by raising wages of workers, that will raise demand for products and that will kind of have a stimulative effect on um, on the economy. And that was just kind of in the air in the 1930s. Was this something that sort of appealed to both sides of the political spectrum or was there debate? debate back then of, okay, well, yeah, if, if if the Dems pass, you know, more money, that means more votes. So we got to be against it. Did politics sort of come into play or was it an overall <laughs> broad sense of we need to help people? It was politics got in the way, but not Republican versus Democrat. It was North versus South. Uh. And so basically both Northern Republicans and Northern Democrats were like pro a higher minimum wage. While, you know, most of the South is Democrat at this point. Uh, remember, African-Americans can't vote. Yeah. Still. And uh, uh, and they're like very, uh, very much opposed. And so you should think that even though agriculture is, is exempt, like there's a whole bunch of low wage textile industries, for example, in North Carolina and South Carolina that 
are paying basically really, really low wages and are know that they're going to get hammered by the minimum wage. And you mentioned um, you mentioned children. And I also think about sort of indentured servitude, right? Like the little towns that, that dug coal and, you know, you bought the same stuff from the company that paid you money. And it was just sort of this, you know, bubble that you lived in. Did, did minimum wage laws pass before child labor laws and, and indentured servitude issues? Yeah, yeah. So the indentured servitude stuff in the U.S. and and in the U.K. just like ends way before we have minimum wages. We've gotten rid of indentures in the U.S. before independence, with the exception of the U.S. blacks in the U.S. South. For if you're white, you're not an indentured worker in yeah. the U.S. Yeah. So so and then the minimum wage is sort of coming. It's like a beginning of the 20th century kind of thing when you have this. You should just think of like like. At, at the beginning of the 20th century, it's been like two generations of just industrialization happening in the U.S. after the Civil War. It's just like big factories going up. Uh, you should think of like Upton Sinclair's writing like The Jungle, uh, a period where like um, people are like really grappling with the consequences of industrializing the economy at like a breakneck speed. And you had similar today, you had very wealthy companies, right? In that period, it was, you know, trains and uh, steel and things like that. But we had a similar situation when these laws were passed as maybe we look at today with a different a different lens. Yeah. So I think like it, it is similar and it's actually similar in a couple of different ways. So like actually the Northern big businesses that are basically the Northern backing the Northern Republicans, they're in favor of a federal minimum wage <laughs> in the 1930s. And even even so even before uh, in the 1910s, they're in favor of these minimum wages because they they're high wage employers. And that's like the way, I don't know if you guys have seen this, like Amazon's running like basically full on ads in the New York Times talking about how it pays a $15 minimum wage and supports raising the federal minimum wage. <laughs> yeah. They just won't allow their workers to take uh, bathroom breaks. Other than that, yeah. I mean, you're good. Yeah, but yeah. you'll get $15 an hour. But yeah. they're also like busting a union in Bessemer, Alabama. Yep. Uh, at the, you know, while they're like taking out ads being like, oh, yes, we should raise the wage. So I, I think that's telling. It's uh, they're, they're willing to pay high wage, but they're not actually willing to like recognize any kind of any kind of unions. And that's also similar, I think, in the late 19th century, early 20th century. You have like, uh, uh, you know, Frick and Carnegie and Rockefeller. And they're like, you know, they're reform. They're open to reform. They're open to like these minimum wages because they're not actually that dependent on child labor or low wage sweatshops they're so they're like yes sure take you know and it's more like their competition that's that might actually depend on that much more right. than them where do unions actually start to come into play to be able to to drive uh wages because i again collective bargaining all that other fun stuff i mean there, there's kind of like this rolling need to focus on the employee the actual people versus the corporation what does that come in you know in the- that's in the 1930s really okay unions are part of broadly part of like the progressive alliance that's pushing for minimum wages in the 10s and 20s but they're small there's not a lot of them and where they really like take off is in the 1930s with the wagner act and it's part of the same moment right so the wagner act is passed in 1936 supreme court upholds it in 1937 supreme court and it's all because like Roosevelt was a basically threatening to pack the court. And so you all of a sudden got a very compliant Supreme Court that was like, yes, OK, maybe, <laughs> may, you know, maybe maybe the federal minimum wage is like is constitutional fine. And so in that sort of like pitch year of 1937, the Supreme Court basically allows big chunks of Roosevelt's policy agenda to be passed. 
And so you get, you know, this huge upswing in unions and you're getting an increase in the minimum wage. There's an interesting sort of, there's some unions, I wouldn't say all, like some unions were like, no, 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 we can't have the federal government setting wages. That's our business. We set wages. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, you can't take that away from us. And sort of like reminiscent about how unions were like kind of mixed on uh, Obamacare and Medicare for all because they're like, no, we negotiate fabulous health care benefits for our members. You can't take that away from us. That's our domain. That's our business. That's <laughs> yeah. our, that, yeah, we, we, we collect dues and that's an, an added value of that due. But, you know, back then it was like wages, but I think like particularly the CIO type unions just kind of got that like the minimum wage was good for, like they were going after high wage firms and the biggest threat to their high wage firms was like low wage firms that could enter and take away the business from the unionized shops. So minimum wage just like damps down the threat of like the unionized, the competition facing unionized firms. Yeah. So we get out of the 30s and into the 40s and 50s and how do things change? So yeah, I mean, it's funny. I just, this morning on Twitter, I posted a, a graph from the 1940s just showing like the CEO to average worker pay and just like it <laughs> collapses between 1941 and 1945. It's just like CEO pay gets crushed. What was it? It went from like 60 times to like 30 times. So, okay. So 60 times. And then today we're talking about- It's like 400 times or something. Just imagine driving up average worker wages so much so fast and driving down CEO pay so much so fast that uh -huh. you cut the ratio by two in like three years. What a radical transformation in the economy that was. Was that simply a, a reaction to we're paying workers more so there's less money on the bottom line to pay the executives? It, yep. And there's taxes and salary caps and union, like basically if you're producing for the war, you basically have to recognize a union and they're going to ask for higher wages. And so like, I would say like the, the economy is kind of firing on all cylinders in a way to reduce inequality. And it's difficult to know exactly which margin is doing the most work. I think unions are doing a big chunk of it. Taxes are doing a big chunk of it. And then just the fact that like, you know, 6% of the prime age workforce is abroad. But this is a time of prosperity. Am, am, am I wrong here? Well, it's difficult to say that World War II was a time of prosperity because people are like eating okay. canned rations. And yeah, it's just like, you know, like a lot of the economy is basically in high after pressure. World after, after, yeah. after World War II. After World War II is definitely a period of prosperity. So like the 30 yeah. years after World War II, are, you know, everyone knows it's kind of like the golden. And these same rules were applying. Is, am I correct? Well, that's interesting. No, because they, they actually took away the rules. Okay. Uh, a lot of the rules like actually get changed, but a lot of the effects persist. And, and I think that's really interesting. It's like, even though tax rates go up, the tax rates stay high until until Kennedy. But, you know, unions are no longer as protected uh, after World War II as they are before because of Taft-Hartley and things like that. But they stick around and uh, they don't like immediately disappear. And that has important wage boosting forces. And just the economy is growing really quickly. Like we're exporting a lot to Europe. There's a whole rash of like, and we're innovating. I mean, I should also say this, like because of probably the Cold War, the US is just spending a ton of money on like research and development on universities. People are going to like GI Bill is just sending a bunch of people into school. Oh, yeah. So there's just like a lot of innovation and like new technologies just showing up all over the place. And I think that's an underappreciated part of the post-war boom is that we just plowed a ton of money into the university system because we were competing with the Russians. Yeah. 
Well, that was, and that, and that was to an extent a social program. Um, yeah, it wound up having lots of beneficial spillovers to the both workers and companies. Yeah. So we then fast forwarding into like the seventies and, and then the, uh, obviously, you know, we have some dips there in the, in the economy. Where's really the big sticking point where uh, we find ourselves in, in a very different landscape today? Let's get to Reagan, damn it. Yeah, so, well, the federal minimum wage, like, peaks in 1968. Okay. And then it, like, has this, like, uh, jigsaw jigsaw pattern. You know, it's like, because it's not indexed to inflation, we should come back and talk to that. It's, like, interesting story about indexation, actually. So, so it's not indexed to inflation. So it's, like, real value is just deteriorating all the time. And then it has to get, like, re-upped to, like, keep pace with inflation. It, it gets re-upped, but it's never, like, keeping pace with with inflation and productivity since since 1968 so it gets increased generally the democrats tend to tend to favor raising the minimum wage and when they control the government they they tend to raise the federal minimum wage one important thing that does happen in the 60s though is that a lot of these exemptions for various sectors for domestic work and um, agricultural labor are taken away and so a lot more like african americans get covered by the minimum wage and there's a recent paper by Laura Dernancourt and Claire Montelier that kind of shows how that actually had a really big effect on converging the black-white wage gap, um, was just like using the minimum wage to raise the wages uh, at the bottom where a lot of black workers are. And that just like pulls up uh, a whole bunch of workers that were like locked out of the kind of higher wage sectors that whites were dominated in and just really... You know, as much as civil rights, it's like just ra- like covering black workers with the minimum wage just did a made a huge dent in racial inequality without any job loss. Was that part of the civil rights legislation? No, no, it's actually just huh. totally a federal. That's just totally something about like it's a change in the Federal Labor Standards Act. Huh. It's amazing when you start paying people equitably, how you can lift them out of poverty. But one of the kind of really interesting things about the economics research on the sort of same time is that partly because the federal minimum wage was deteriorating in states and later cities began passing their own minimum wages that were higher than the federal minimum wage. And so what this gave starting in the 90s was just a, it gave economists a laboratory for we're like, okay, now we can finally kind of run something closer to like a controlled experiment where you can sort of see when a, when a state raises the minimum wage, like there's a famous New Jersey, Pennsylvania study uh, that looks like at fast food restaurants on two sides of the Susquehanna River, what happens when, you know, New Jersey raised its minimum wage and Pennsylvania didn't, what happened to employment in those restaurants and found that, found that actually employment went up more in New Jersey uh, fast food restaurants despite this increase in the minimum wage. That's one of the big impetuses to this interest in, in economics at monopsony is that that's one of the kind of monopsony, this idea with that employers set wages and are trying to like set wages so that they can save on payroll while, while tolerating a bit of turnover is one of the kind of explanations in economics that can generate that kind of that kind of result. And so we got a whole lot of list and then that just kept going. So we had like California increase its minimum wage. Then we have like federal changes in the minimum wage that then wound up only affecting some states and not other states. So we were just finally getting like a chunk of variation in workers that were affected by the minimum wage versus ones that weren't. But quick, quick question though. I mean, so during the Reagan times, we were pitched trickle down economics, which was supposed to feed more money and trickled down to, to, to everyone that obviously did not work. And during that time frame, we really haven't 
raise the minimum wage to uh, pass starvation wages. So I guess you know the big question around just the the, the economic landscape of today is we have more money going to CEOs, boards, than again, 3,000 times that of, of a quote unquote essential worker. So is the force of a minimum wage to $15 an hour, which is equal to about $30,000 a year for God's sakes, is, is that the only way that we can really get our citizens out of poverty? Because we're, we're, it, we're in bad state right now, especially after COVID. Yeah. So the real place the minimum wage like makes a dent in inequality is between like the average worker and, and low income workers. So really like crushes right. the, it really, it's like really a tool for like pulling up the bottom, not uh-huh. pulling down the top. Right. So if your real concern is CEO pay, that's probably not going to be fixed by like raising the minimum wage. Uh, you probably are going to need something like because not not necessarily like that many workers get covered by the minimum wage where it currently stands. Uh-huh. And so to really to really put a dent in the in the in top incomes, you would need to like drive up wages for a lot of workers. Gotcha. And the minimum wage is probably not the best tool for doing that. But it does take the bottom half, really, the people that are in starvation slash not in living wage territory. It brings them up to at least where they're not starvation wages. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, so for a long time, it used to be thought that like minimum wage workers were just like teenagers in middle class homes. Yeah. And, and, you know, a big chunk of them were in like the 60s and 70s. But increasingly, partly, you know, since Reagan, for all the reasons uh, you're, you, you talked about, an increasing share of minimum wage workers are like older workers, workers with families that, you know, are trying to like uh, live on a minimum wage job. Right. And it's really, really hard on the federal minimum wage. We'll get back to the interview in a minute. But first, we have a question for Andy Katz, COO of Next. Andy, if a company wants to actually come to Next and utilize your database and target texting candidates, I mean, how does that actually work? Right. So we have the software to provide it two different ways. If an employer has their own database of opted in text messages, whether it's through their ATS, we can text on their behalf. Or we have over eight and a half million users that have opted into our text messaging at this point. So we can use our own database. We can dissect it by obviously by geography, by function, um, any which way. Some and sometimes we'll even parse the resumes of the opted in people to target certifications. So we really can you know dive really deep if they want to hone in on you know just give me the best hundred candidates that I want to text message with and have a conversation back and forth with versus going and saying I need 30,000 retail people across the country. And that's more of a, you know, yes, no text messaging back and apply. For more information, go to hiring.next.com. Remember, that's next with the double X, not the triple X. Hiring.next.com. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. 
head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. Right. In fact, there's a paper that sort of shows that like uh, that when you raise the federal minimum wage, you actually get workers leaving like they use less food stamps. They use less of the earned income tax credit. So you kind of get like a budget kick back to the government from raising mm-hmm. the minimum wage because you lower uh, dependence on the social yeah. safety net. So I was going to say, historically, in times of raising the minimum wage or introducing a minimum wage, did the economy ever tank because of that? Because I think that's a common argument against raising the minimum wage is that unemployment is going to rise, companies will go out of business. Did any of that happen on a on a grand scale when when these policies were introduced? No, I mean, so, uh, like like the the you know one of the cleanest experiments we have is actually the effect of the federal minimum wage in 1938. And what you do see is like you know the minimum wage did have a big effect in the U.S. South, and it did looks like it killed a lot of jobs. But it's not clear that it actually like raised unemployment. Like those jobs might have actually just reappeared at the new minimum wage. And so, like you know, we didn't see like a giant crisis of black unemployment in the South with the increase in the minimum wage there, which was hitting hitting low wage workers, low wage and black black and white workers. So, I mean, partly it's like also would we pass a minimum wage if it was, if it was like anywhere in the realm of like actually going to crater the economy like if, if it was so obvious that it was going to like destroy the economy wouldn't kind of people just understand that yes and so the fact that it, it's not that we have a debate and an argument around it suggests that it's not obvious that it destroys the economy it feels like it feels like these are conversations that are engineered by corporate America to try to scare the shit out of everybody. Overall, it's not going to create the economy. It's actually going to raise people out of poverty. I guess I don't understand why, other than other than sheer greed, we're not looking at uh, what it costs to live in cities and starting to set living wages for everyone across the nation. Why can't we be more transparent? I don't, I don't understand from a, an economic standpoint and from a political standpoint. It seems like it makes sense, especially to be able to serve your your constituents. Well, yeah. So the minimum wage is hugely popular with voters. I mean, Florida sent, you know, goes for Trump and is completely red and yet passed a $15 minimum wage in the last election. Good point. So like, you know, Republicans, even Republicans love <laughs> minimum wages. And I think it's, uh, you know, actually, it's really interesting, like in the UK, the Tories have really been big proponents of minimum wage increases. So uh, they they just kind of owned it as like a policy that they're that they're into. And so I think it's actually not obvious. Remember this thing about Amazon being in favor of raising the minimum wage, Walmart and Target and a bunch of other companies actually have their own internal voluntary minimum wages where they just don't their starting wages are uniform across the country. Walmart's starting wage is like 11 bucks everywhere from Mississippi to Seattle. And so I think it's more ideology than it is greed because there are like businesses that uh, like for whom the minimum wage is like not a big deal. And uh, I think it's more that there's just this like hard libertarian and it's small business. Small business probably does get hurt by the minimum wage. Well, and the, and the, the counter argument would be, would be if it's so popular, why hasn't it been done on a federal level in a, a, over a decade? 
And and to me, is it is it a market situation where states are competing for workers or city? I think Seattle recently, uh, in the last five years or so, increased it to a, a pretty a nice wage. Are 15. cities competing for workers? Does how how much does that come into play? I don't think so. I think I don't think cities are, like one thing you see is that when you have like cities that sit across the state borders from each other, and one state raises the minimum wage. You see wages go go up in that, you know, on one side of the border, but they stay up like relative to the other side of the border for like five years after. So it's like there's um, maybe four years after like so there's like not a sense in which, you know, even two places that are right next to each other. When wages go up in the other place, the other city across the way feels the need to raise its wages to compete. So that, I just don't think that happens very much. And people don't move across the border to work. Yeah, and state. firms don't like reopen their uh, businesses at the other side. You know, they don't just change their mailing address or something. So, so I think it's interesting that. Like, so I, I don't think cities are competing for um, for workers. I think it's much more like it's much more a reflection of the fact that much more of the economic growth in America is happening in cities, and so and Florida. And Florida. <laughs> so like, uh, uh, so like housing prices are going up and the cost of living is going up disproportionately fast for low wage workers in cities. And a response of cities to do that is to raise minimum wages. Last question for me, Suresh, and, and this is, I think, more of an opinion. I, I don't know. Maybe hopefully you've got some evidence based to, 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 to answer this. That'd be awesome. But Kroger recently closed four locations because they were pretty much forced to pay their essential workers $4 more per hour. And so Kroger, once again, we're, they're, they're our whipping boy for now. Uh, they, their CEO makes, I think, anywhere from 12 to $14 million a year. And uh, the, the organization is you know, like over a $120 billion organization. Uh, how, how does a minimum wage and boosting the minimum wage get organizations like that to start being more fiscally responsible for their employees at the bottom as much as they are to the ones at the top? Well, I mean, it doesn't convince them. It forces them. Is that what we need to do, though? We need to force them to do the right thing? For some of them... Yes, for others, no. And that's the interesting thing is that, you know, in the labor market, there's like lots of room for different companies to pursue different priorities around uh, around their workers. So, you know, you can have companies like Costco and Walmart kind of existing at the same time. And so like if Kroger, I think Kroger's like also responding to like Prop 22 uh, that basically, uh, you know, I think they're basically like firing all their full-time employees and hiring them all back at like DoorDash. Yeah, Instacart. Yeah, some of their people they're actually they're using Instacart for some of those in in Cal, uh, California. Yeah, so I think I think that's not like a the Kroger thing is um, not so much a minimum wage problem. I think it's much more of a reclassification problem that their incentives to like cut their workforce in response to like a hazard pay requirement was partly driven by the opportunity to basically substitute gig workers with that you don't have to pay any benefits on. Gaming the system. 
Yeah, and so that's why it's like kind of important for the kinds of laws that platforms are responsible for unemployment insurance and health benefits and uh, all of the normal stuff that comes along with the job for their platform workers. Good luck with that. I mean, California did do it, and then the tech companies ran this like Prop 22 campaign to basically get it overturned. Spent, yeah, hundreds of millions of dollars, yeah. Yeah, $200 million. All right, Suresh, I'm gonna, I have so many questions, uh, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna <laughs> limit it to this last one. So I'm going to give you I'm going to give you three issues and you rank them in terms of mo- like the most impact on employment and wages. Okay, you ready? Yep. Number number one is globalism. And with the pandemic, this is being, you know, on hyperspeed, right? Like if I can work in San Francisco, I can work in Denver. Ultimately, though, if companies realize that you can put a job in Denver, you can also put it in Delhi and wages will will sort of balance out uh, effectively. Number two is automation, right? So as companies have the the resources to automate much of this stuff, whether it be with robotics or software, uh, that's obviously going to impact the number of people uh, working, although you get a, you, in contrast, you get people saying there'll be more opportunities built with automation and, and robotics. So that actually help, uh, help out with wages and, and employment. And the third thing is the gig economy. Um, so we, we touched on a little bit, but, you know, as companies realize, well, okay, to, to game the system, uh, somebody won't be an employee if I'm, if I'm having them as contract workers to come in and serve food or cook or, you know, uh, wash clothes for that, you know, time that they're still a part-time worker and I'll just have more workers on the gig economy and won't have to pay, uh, full-time wages or wages um, that are that are fair or, or minimum wage. So we have globalism, we have automation, we have the gig, gig economy. And I'm asking you just to rate those biggest to least impact on wages. Come on. I'm like, come on, give me, give me climate change. Give me demographic change. Uh, uh, as, as like, as, 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 <laughs> Is it too softball of a question? I thought it was a good question. It, it's just kind of like, I mean, they're like, well, not, what's your top they, three, Suresh? Yeah. So my top three is like, I mean, climate change. I think is just gonna, you know, just look at Texas. We're just gonna get stuff like that happening all the time. And what do we do? And that's just gonna like move the labor market because we're going to need jobs to adapt to this stuff. So it's like, you know, Green New Deal stuff, uh, even if you don't like that term, it's gonna be like, we're gonna need a lot of like construction workers. <laughs> okay. Loosely globalism. Quit trying to fit it in a box. Let the man answer the question. Well, he's going outside the box of I my question. I am going outside the box because like you put you put these like three things that I don't even think are like necessarily the most important, they're like kind of a, they're a little bit of a grab bag of things that are not necessarily the, the biggest okay. thing. So the other thing, for example, in response to the automation point, I'd just say like the aging of the American population so that we simultaneously need more nurses aides, more people in nursing homes, more uh, healthcare aides, that like the supply of people that we need to take care of other people, yeah. which cannot be outsourced and cannot be uh, remote worked, that's actually just gonna go up. And uh, that's like, you know, the future of work is not like a robot, it's like a CNA. And so I think that's like the big, a big offsetting thing against the fears of robotics is the, just that the the caring labor part of the economy is just gonna become larger and larger. Okay, and the gig economy doesn't keep you up at night either. Doesn't keep me up at night. It's a symptom of like <laughs> a, a bunch of other stuff. It's something that we could fix with, with, with uh, policy if we wanted to. So what I'm hearing is the world is falling apart, so we'll continue to rebuild it. 
and people are dying and getting sick and old, so we'll need people to take care of them, and don't worry about the gig economy. Is that what I'm hearing? Yep. So it's the end of the world as we know it, and Suresh feels fine, everybody. (laughs) And Suresh feels fine. That's the lesson. Big applause. Well, Suresh, hey, dude, we appreciate, we don't get enough time with you. Let's just say that. But uh, we appreciate you taking the time, coming back on the pod. We'll definitely have you back. Love the discussion. If somebody wants to follow you, find out more about you, maybe you don't want stalkers on on social. I don't know. Wants to attend Columbia. <laughs> yeah. Wants to attend, yeah, to attend one of your classes. Where would they actually find you if you want them to find you? Uh, I'm uh, on Twitter at, uh, at S-N-A-I-D-U-N-L, where the NL is just for Newfoundland. Nice. That's a whole other podcast. <laughs> Chad? Another one in the books. Love it. We, we out. out. Thanks. This has been the Chad and Cheese Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss a single show. And be sure to check out our sponsors because they make it all possible. For more, visit chadcheese.com. Oh, yeah. You're welcome. You've got questions, we've got answers. Business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging. Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast to learn from the world's experts. Join me, your host, Diane Helbig, as I chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business. You'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas, tips, and suggestions you need to realize greater success. Get what you need for your business when you need it from the people who have the answers. Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.